0: the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Let's face it, the future is now. We're living in a connected cyber society, and we need to stop ignoring it or pretending that it's not affecting us. Join us as we explore how humanity arrived at this current state of digital reality and what it means to live amongst so much technology and data. Knowledge is power, now more than ever.
1: to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com.
2: Markup. Sean. I think, was it we, did we count to three last time?
3: yes <laughs> one two three nft and then i said web point three and that he got stupid from there but uh, but then we had a really good guest that kind of make us looks and sound most sound on the podcast smart so we're like right. you know what i like that i like to sound smart so we decided to bring bring him back
2: so this time do we uh, do we do nft one two three and or three, two, one. I don't know what do we what are we doing this time? Where I know we, we started with an idea and didn't do anything <laughs> on that topic
3: last time. We we just went all over the place and show uh, sure how much we follow the script, which by the way <laughs> we don't have. But I that's think that's right. the beauty of w- what we do. Now we 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 wanted to talk about NFTs and Web three, but it it's such a complicated, extended topic, especially when you put different perspective, different angle on it that. Yeah, we ended up not talking about the NFT. So I think if you do one, two, three NFTs, maybe magically are you're <laughs> clicking your your shoes, I guess, and he will appear.
2: I think I closed with TFN. This <laughs> FN, no way. I don't know what that's stands.
3: Oh yeah, there was the acronym let's, story. Let's today. stick
2: to let's stick to the topic. So f- first off. <laughs> uh a great guest. Uh, you certainly made us think. Uh, hopefully, our audience in, is enjoying the first episode with you, Connor Barrego. Thanks for being on again,
4: Marco Sean. Thank you for having me back, and uh, I'll try to stay on topic this time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, that's if, that's it, if or we or you.
3: not? <laughs> it's, okay. it's okay.
2: We'll see where we'll see where things go, and I, uh, that's that's a sign of uh, technology, right? Uh, sometimes you build something and it gets used in ways that was never intended or never, never thought of. And I don't know if, I mean, blockchain Mm -hmm. certainly was built for something, but it's getting used for everything, right? So I think that it's a perfect example of how something can be reused and repurposed for many, many things, including NFTs.
4: (laughs) Absolutely. I think that uh, I think there couldn't be a better example of something like that. It, you know, set out with a mission to revolutionize finance and the method in which it's using it. It's affecting everything related to software, uh, specifically data storage. And, you know, that's where NFTs really come into the conversation. So.
2: Well, before we actually get into that, um, we definitely want people to listen to the first episode, but not just to hear your your uh, your background. So for those listening to this now, um, a few words about your, your journey to this point and what you're working on now.
4: Um, to keep it really simple, uh, I have a master's in data science and an undergrad in political science and entrepreneurship. I uh, used to work at Google as a digital growth strategist, helping brands scale their advertising efforts when they'd raise you know, venture capital between five and 50 million dollars. Um so all of this kind of led me to web3 in a really roundabout indirect manner just out of you know outside in- interest that I had and different mentors kind of pushing me along the way. Um I saw an opportunity what I understood with the advertising ecosystem, NFTs and web3 to kind of jump in and hopefully help musicians and content creators at large own a larger percentage of the revenue that comes from their digital creations and products. Um, and, you know, when you start talking about digital creations and products, it makes sense to tie that with NFTs. And while I see NFTs as something far more expansive than just collectible images, um, you know, that's a great jumping off point for the conversation.
3: Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, I can make a couple of connections just to, to, to Sean you said people shouldn't yeah. listen to the first episode to learn about Connor, but they should listen to the first episode because we're probably going to refer to it <laughs> quite a bit. We are, um,
2: and I uh, and I think the, uh, the Connor's background is much more uh, in depth than that one as well. And there's a ton of stuff that he's done, which is super relevant. So
3: right, definitely, right, right.
2: definitely catch it.
3: So I think that to start here, last time we talked about the 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 platform in particular, the the, the Web three, what it means, what take back our is maybe monetize on that don't don't just give it away and uh and be sure that um i don't know maybe there is not just in the hands of few companies but that everybody even the community uh and the small businesses can get together and have a different vision instead of the big players dictating the rules very again go listen to the first episode please uh but one thing that really stuck to us was one: we wanted to learn more about NFTs and how these apply to uh, the music and and the arts in general. Because you know, artists many times they get, you know, they, I don't think they really, unless you get really big, you don't get all the payoff from what you deserve. Unless you're again the big the big bands and the big artists and and all of that. So let's start with the NFTs and. And then the connection of why would it be valuable for musicians and photographers and designers and all of that?
4: Absolutely. So I think to jump off with musicians, right, um, there was this idea, I believe, floating around in the 80s or 90s. This is when I was really young, so don't quote me on it. But I think the idea was if you could find a thousand true fans that you could pretty much build a viable career as a musician. And I'm not really sure who said that or where that's necessarily attributed to, but I don't think that was necessarily true up until the invention of NFTs. And the reason why I say that is because what we've seen, uh, some musicians and some platforms like Royal IO and Sound XYZ uh, take as an approach to helping uh, musicians leverage the technology is by doing limited release drops of singles of albums that are collectible, that are tied to you know streams or revenues potentially from the commercialization of that music down the road, um, but more specifically, um, as, as essentially a, a collectible that can signify uh, early fandom to the user, uh, or not to 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 outside observers that they were someone who was very early to this person's music, which in, I think, music culture is actually kind of a big thing for people who are writers or uh, about the music industry or curators who, you know, generate playlists. You know, being the first to identify a new sound, a new musician is a point of pride for a lot of members within the music and entertainment community. And this NFT becomes a badge of honor that not only allows you to signify that you were an early supporter of this musician, but you actually equip that musician with with funds uh, that they could use to further produce additional songs, uh, music videos, or to commercialize and promote uh, their music on streaming platforms, which would drive up the revenue associated with your percent ownership, if it happened to be a royalty distribution NFT. Um, But in NFT, you know, in this case, you know, is just identifying the song that has been, you know, as a file that's recorded to the blockchain. And the file itself is often not even actually stored on the blockchain, uh, but more directed to another storage system, many of which are powered by cryptographic technologies that are similar to blockchain to sort of decentralize it. Um, But at the same time, it isn't stored directly on the blockchain, just the pointer to that data is stored there. Um, I think that's often something that people like to bring up as a nuance point. So I was just calling that out.
2: I mean, we, we dig into that in the last episode as well. We, we spent yeah. a little time on the file storage. Can I pause you for a moment? And, and I want to talk about the, what's stored with the transaction. Because mm-hmm. You said, so somebody, somebody's connected to an artist early on, uh, mm-hmm. with that song. Um, I can harken back to my days where rap music was being mixed and special mixes were being created by different people. And there might be only one of that mix that came from some party. Right. And, right. and so that would be a unique thing. And w- what I was hoping, and if I had, I'm sure I have that mix on a, on a tape somewhere, but I don't know who mixed it. I don't know unless I dig it all up, who, who all the artists are that are part of the mix. Um, so I'm just thinking like DJs who, What's stored in the "quote unquote" NFT to say who created it, what IP is part of it, who bought it? Is there a history of who owned it if it gets passed along or sold? Um, can you share a little bit of what's what's in there?
4: Absolutely. So it's hard to say specifically what's in there because it would vary by the NFT contract you use to to mint your music, right? But What's become very popular with a lot of musicians and these creators is to invite the entire creative team to uh, profit from the royalties of it. So, you know, if there's a songwriter, a sound mixer and, you know, the, the actual artists, you know, let's say they're just performing it, you know, providing vocals, maybe providing instrumentals, you know, each of those individual individuals who are associated with the creation of the creative output. Right. In this case, the song. Um, can be all worked into that royalty distribution programmatically. Um, And so essentially what that would mean is that they would have a wallet set up, you know, that's tied to their profile that, you know, any funds that are generated from the sale of this NFT go into their wallet. Um, But yeah, it's interesting that you bring up, you know, what I would call provenance, right? Uh, To the, the record of ownership over that NFT, right? So, you know, in this case, we're going to sell 10 editions potentially of the same song. And we're going to see who's the current holder of all 10 of those editions. But again, because it's recorded the blockchain, if we'd like to look up what other wallets were the previous owners of that NFT, you can see that transaction history as well as the amount that, you know, the, you know, the NFT the ownership of that song was exchanged for. So you can see the, you know, the value of it increased or decrease over time uh, through those exchanges. And when you have multiple copies of the song, you can actually establish potentially a market value for it um, because you would have, you know, multiple transactions to actually compare the liquid market value of the song to, um, uh, to kind of support that. So it, it, it creates a marketplace for these collectibles um, just by, uh, you know, sort of a feature of the use case of the walk but the other data that could be stored on there, uh, you know, could be, you know, the album artwork and the artists associated with that. It could potentially be a music video that gets released. Um, It could be a link to a larger NFT that's representative of the album. Um they're, they're, you know, it's as li- limitless as, you know, the optionality that you could design for an application with a media interface. Um, it really would depend on how that music is going to be used uh, beyond that initial sale that, you know, they would have wanted to incorporate some of that information up front with. Um, but I think that's why it's such a new space, too. We're still exploring and figuring that out.
2: I'm just wondering, did, does that mean that... In this case that album that song or that album is only playable through an nFT enabled interface that where you unlock it with your uh, your credentials or what does that look like
4: so again it depends on how it's set up right a lot of these are set up as singles right where you own it and then you download the m p three um so Yes, you could play it through one of the marketplaces. They're often set up with, you know, the capability to to you know visualize or to display the media that's kind of on in the underlying contract. Um, and we're not talking about changing the file types here. So you could expect an MP3. Um, so an MP3 player on most sites would be able to use it. But what I imagine is that as we get further down the NFT rabbit hole, two three years out, we see a streaming platform. Uh, emerge that utilizes an NFT uh, to kind of manage royalties around streaming data. Um, but right now, um, there isn't really too much in the way of a viable option of that. Um, I know that there are a couple of platforms experimenting with it. So that's why I do think it's coming. Uh, just, we're, it's definitely not there yet, though.
3: Oh, so th- this is very exciting. I'm a, I'm a pretty big define myself as a music fan I've seen a ton of concert I've been you know in the in the mash pit many times especially younger from our own M- mash potato pit Mashed potato pit but uh, <laughs> you know and you were fighting maybe to get you know the pick that the, the guitar player would, would throw at you or the, 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 the drum stick and and then, you know, you will go out and I, I'm trying to picture a real life scenario here where you, you leave and then there's all the merchandise. I'm going to get the t-shirt. I'm going to get maybe the signed book if I have the money for that or whatever. And then I keep the ticket because, you know, that's a badge of honor to, to have that David Bowie concert or something like that. Yeah. And so I'm envisioning that we we transporting this into a certified, authentic provenance, yes. then it's just up to the creativity of of the artist and the, the, the branding, marketing machine behind it. And I know that he's actually, and I, I had a conversation, I almost forgot about it, more than a year ago with Josh Katz, which is the founder of and CEO of Yellow Heart in in uh, Manhattan, and they, they do ticketing with NFTs. So they attach bonus value to certain tickets, and it can come with an exclusive uh, you know, piece from, I don't know, Maroon 5 or whatever it is. So, <clears throat> are we going to find ourselves in a situation where the artist can really cash on this or the middleman is still going to make most of the money <laughs> unless you are, I don't know, Metallica?
4: <laughs> so... I love that question. And yeah, I think that you bringing up the ticketing use case is super awesome because I I think that that's probably going to be one of the more prolific ones we see here soon. I've actually seen a music festival pre-selling their passes to the music festival as NFTs and there gets you other VIP rights there. So yeah, um, the question is, are the middlemen going to continue to be the outsized winners in these situations? I think that in the short term, we're going to continue to see that. And I think that's going to be because the business managers are going to be the ones making the decision to take the risk and bring these, their artists onto the platform. Um, but I think in the process, they'll be disintermediating themselves in a lot of these services, and they're going to have to rethink their business model over the long run as, you know, kind of these SoundCloud artists, for lack of a better word, become more familiar with the Web3 tooling that would enable them to bypass uh, some of the more predatory relationships that they can have with record labels and managers. Um, But again, because a lot of this is knowledge gated, I do think that in the transitionary period, a lot of legacy kind of relationships will continue to persist into the environment. Um, And I think you'll see that reflected in sort of the contract royalty distributions, Uh, likely many of the wallets that will be holders of the royalty distributions for large name artists are going to be the management or agency records that own their contracts and, uh, you know, music rights presently. Um, Like I said, because of some of the, you know, more collaborative uh, elements to Web3, we could see... You know a a lot a competitive SaaS. this is kind of where my business kind of fits in right is we'd like to offer this to any musician or artist um but you know it's going to take building out a more robust community and demand for the purchasing side of things and you know some people with more capital up front to invest in the software development on that side of things so it'd be nice if we could get a community run initiative well funded enough right off the bat so that we could help bypass some of those concerns. But I think being practical and realistic about it, you know, there's nothing gonna stop those agencies from reproducing their contracts on web three. And it will be ultimately a choice of the artist to go work with their brand name. And that might be what they're trading up that those royalty distribution for is the brand name recognition of the larger agency. Um, But I think the value that the agency adds is going to continue to be diminished to more coordinating partnerships for in real life events and coordinating logistics for touring and maybe merchandising and kind of some more like the soft uh, human to human activities and a lot less of the digital operations, which I think, you know, is where they charge a lot of their pricing for now, but uh, won't be something they'll be able to continue to do long term.
3: And I want to add on this, and I know probably Sean wants to get on it, but one other thing that we talked about and and it's still like connected to in a way that that certification that you have attached to it was in the ticketing industry doing the NFTs, it would be avoiding, for example, scalping, you know, mm-hmm. like the, buying all the tickets and then the reselling because you attach your, your crypto contract there. And mm-hmm. so you, you could track that, which will be already a pretty good thing because I was reading in the news the other day that to see Bruce Springsteen would be $5,000 to start. Not gonna happen, but um, not, not even right because honestly, he doesn't wanna sell that at 5,000. is out of control. But if you can control the way you sell the ticket online, that's already something good for the artist because he's not cashing the money of the scalping. <laughs>
4: I, I think one of the things that will be challenging right um, with that whole idea is that he will need to verify who his fans or audience members are beforehand um, because I could see a scenario or an instance where someone spins up a swarm of, uh, of bots or crypto wallets to go make purchases into individual wallets. That would each be individual ticket purchases, but you know, then transferring that to a centralized wallet. And it doesn't seem that far-fetched to me that someone would t- go to the lengths to write a script like that. Now, if you were to put a gate in front of that purchase uh, process and say, "Hey, you have to be an official holder of, uh, you know, this, you know, let's call it uh, the boss NFT here, for lack of better words, you know, since uh, we're talking about the boss himself." And um, maybe that's a nominal price, but it's a nominal price high enough that the entire bot swarm isn't going to have all of these NFTs. And if they were doing something that effect, you could block those NFT holders in the future. So it would only affect one show. Um, but, you know, again, we're, we're getting into a game of cat and mouse because there's always people who are going to be out there trying to find a way to gamify the system. But I, I do think it does move us in the right direction towards being able to solve for some of these problems. Um, but, you know, I don't think there will ever be necessarily a foolproof solution here because, you know, like I said, there's there's always people trying to get an edge on the game.
2: <laughs> Those that, pesky bots, John. The bots want to get in on the game as well. And yeah. let's stick with that for a minute because, I mean, the the reality is there's always going to be some... Some game playing, right? Mm -hmm. Of of the system, whatever the system is, and each each system will have different rules. Mm -hmm. Um, The the question I have is, I don't know, maybe maybe it's just the platform, but I I mean, like ticket sales, a paper ticket, right? You buy a ticket, that move to you get an electric electronic ticket that's an image on your phone or a QR Mm -hmm. code or something, and do the and I don't know this, do the artists have to worry about that kind of stuff? Um, I'm just wondering, I mean they're they're not building these systems. Right. Uh, but I'm just wondering, do how much NFT does the artist need to understand or or how do they get into it and, and not get in a world where they they're losing their short shirts?
4: Yeah. I think those are valid questions for sure. So I think that, you know, on some level they need to be familiar with a lot of the concepts of the technology right what what is it used for what's its purpose um you know kind of why does you know what makes it better than the existing system so in this case you know if we're having centralized ticket exchanges versus a decentralized ticket exchange what is the value of a decentralized ticket exchange i think um you know really what that comes down to is you could as as musicians assuming you're a part of the marketplace and making decisions on the sale of your tickets. You know, you might not have to understand the coding, but you could understand what rules you wanna set for what it takes to purchase a ticket, right? And so that's where this, you know, token gating of purchasing could come in to help reduce the the likelihood of scalping. Um, And uh, I don't think that the musicians themselves would have to know much about the technology in order for that to be beneficial to them. Um, but I think that in terms of protecting themselves from predatory deals with people who understand the technology better to, than them, um, it could be detrimental because you know, the smart contracts that are ultimately going to be in charge of selling or collecting royalties, you know, whether it's a piece of merchandise, a digital collectible, a ticket, you know, their, their song, uh, someone that they trust should be able to kind of look through that contract. The same way you would want a lawyer that was independent of your management agency or record label to look through a contract and tell you, hey, there's nothing in here that, you know, you weren't expecting or that's, you know, overtly predatory towards you and what you're doing. Um, So I think that to the extent that you can be familiar with the technology, it's to your betterment. Um, But, you know, doing, I think, some basic level amount of education on yourself is is definitely important if you want to take advantage of the space. If, if you're not really worried about your intellectual property rights being up for sale and you're just trying to open new revenue streams, I think there are opportunities in that realm as well that you, know, you wouldn't necessarily need to be um, you know, super savvy with NFTs. But again, the more you know, the better you're going to feel about what you're doing in the space and the more likely you are to probably have success. But it's not a it's not a hard and fast rule, I'd say.
3: And I think it, it just come back to uh, the size like you know instead of the company that we were talking about on the other podcast here we're talking about the artist, which is still a business at a certain point. So I guess if you're the small artist as the small business, maybe you need to be somehow knowledgeable about it because you don't have the agent and the entire. System behind you that can take care of that. So I think a facilitation of this, an interface that is easy to use. Really? This said, let's bring it back to to society and therefore the users of this, right? So let, let's. How do you envision, for example, a lot of people thinking about NFTs now? They think about you know the the board ape and or other stuff that come in the news just because it sells for six hundred thousand bucks. And you yep. wonder why, but there's also other stuff made by artificial intelligence, um, you know, artists or whatever it is. And um, so I'm trying to envision how are the user that are not really into crypto and I mean, because let's face it, even just to start a, a wallet to buy a piece of NFTs, you, you need a certain knowledge. It's not that easy. Where can we go with this? I mean, then does it become like an exchange of memorabilia? Does it become a collector, a market for that? Uh, Helping to envision the future.
4: So I think it comes down to a few different products, really, that could all be interrelated. Um, There's the product that I like to see, which is around, let's call it music discovery and artist discovery. And that's where I think I'm working um, and that's beneficial to musicians, but not necessarily users but potentially users. Um, essentially, if you're allowed uh, allow users to uh, help other musicians get discovered by adding them to a playlist and you have a fairly large following as a playlist creator, there's a way to monetize that engagement uh, you know and not necessarily insert my business as the middleman, but if I'm providing the infrastructure for that, you know, that's how that interaction could be monetized, right? Um, And there's things beyond that, like, if, you know, we have this playlist, you can produce content from it, which would be beneficial from an SEO perspective. And what I mean by that is, like, writing a post about your curated playlist, right, that talks to maybe the rationale for the ranking or the, you know, the ordering of the playlist you've created, right? And all of those things go to help the musician get discovered. So one of the things that would be nice is if that entire platform is owned by let's call them the curators and the creators right um, they could start to segment their audiences based on the different you know genres of music and the subgenres and niches that these musicians represent to really help improve the again the discoverability of their music and so that benefits you know I think music fans, both passive and super engaged, uh, with finding new ways to kind of discover music that aren't necessarily AI powered. And I think that's a refreshing take from the TikTok feed approach, which I'm also a big fan of, but for different reasons. Um, So music discoverability is a platform, number one. I think that ticket sales and event ticket sales, which would be much larger than just music, creates a new form of memorabilia, but it adds more value in terms of hopefully allowing real fans to access affordable prices to see the artists that they want to see. And the artists want that to happen because it inspires a stronger engagement and relationship between their fans and them um, by creating those real life memories that are gonna hopefully add value to the first memorabilia collectible they have, the ticket sale, And if they had collectible merch available for sale that was associated with NFTs at the concert, you know, RFID tags can be sewn directly into clothing now and associated with uh, NFTs. So there are ways to really continue to expand that fan experience from just the memorabilia collectible aspect and then kind of going on to the streaming side of things. This has to do more with uh, helping musicians break away from the large record label model and into more of a self-funded model. Because if you're able to sell, let's say, a thousand fans, it's kind of still a ridiculous idea. Um, What you do have today are a lot of NFT people who are very excited to collect music NFTs and to collect NFTs broadly. They're not very discriminate. So that's not necessarily great for the musician in terms of building a loyal fan base, but it does do something for them in terms of accessing capital that they can reinvest into growing themselves and their audience um, and eventually turning their musical properties into something valuable. So I think that in helping musicians to facilitate their business model really early on, again, really does a whole lot there for helping them to access capital that they would need to grow themselves independent of a label. Now, where does the user benefit the most from all of these things? I think that uh, musicians are more likely to kind of undercut the money they, I I think we see a lot of bloat in the cost of things because of middle management, you know, surcharges basically. And so with a lot of these entities potentially removed from the supply chain process, let's call it, in delivering you know, the music experience on behalf of the musician, right? Then pricing in general kind of comes down from all of those other elements because they don't have to add that in as a premium or a percent of margin baked into their business model. Um, so you know, from that perspective, the users might be able to access the artists at better price points, and the artists would take home even more of the money, so they'd be earning more. Um, and you know, potentially that relationship, you know, is a virtuous flywheel. We don't really know because we haven't been in that environment. So I think you know, while the use case of the user is still a little flimsy, especially with how difficult it is to onboard to the system at this time, I think it's more of a waiting game to develop either the platform from a streaming perspective, a ticketing and memorabilia perspective, or uh, a growth and marketing perspective that's going to provide a streamlined onboarding process for regular users uh, that kind of abstracts away the password key management issues. Um, and that does get into the discussion is is this platform decentralized if users don't kind of you know own their own keys, but that was kind of what we talked about last time and so I'll kind of save that as an illusion for for that. But you know, the users themselves, I think that uh, we still have a long way to go before we see anything tangible for them to really, I don't know, benefit or get excited about.
2: Yeah, and I was just thinking that because a lot of the the stuff you said would be a good thing for the artist requires a, a fan base, right? Mm-hmm and it seems like the barrier to join for the for the ordinary user is super high mm-hmm. and so I'm wondering if they're if they're limiting their their exposure and i'm i'm just wondering also because if you look at something like spotify and i don't remember where i heard it and what the number was but something like the the happy song only made a few thousand bucks or something from mm-hmm. the, the partial pennies that, of royalties or, or cuts from spotify that it, that he got um I, I see perhaps the artists making more money than they would on a huge platform, but if there are many platforms, do they have to be on all of them? And which ones do the users then choose f- to be part of? And and are they, I'm asking a lot here, but will the user also then have to change the way they think about it, where it's, I don't know what the price is, 10 bucks a month for an unlimited streaming of all music all the time on, on a Spotify versus I want to pay 20 cents to listen to this right now?
4: Absolutely. So I think that's a really great question. Um, so when it comes to what does that look like in practice, right? Uh, the NFT, like let's make the assumption that there's only one NFT for every song. Like if that's our assumption here, right? Uh, the artist only released one NFT for this song. It is the same NFT that's for, re- Basically referenced on Spotify, on SoundCloud, on YouTube, on every single streaming platform. So what, the, what, what is nice about this is the artist only has to make the song available as an NFT once. Let's just say it's assuming it's a royalty streaming NFT. And so the streaming platform would be able to leverage the existing smart contract to stream the NFT on their platform and paying the licensing agreement. Now, how the platform decides to charge the user is up to them. They could monetize it through ads. They could monetize it through subscription. They could monetize it through single play microtransactions. Um, I think the platforms that will, you know, ultimately win out in the long run are going to be the platforms that can produce some form of arbitrage between their monthly subscription price and, you know, essentially what they have to pay out for the micro you know, costs of streaming the songs, uh, you know, individually every month and forecast, all right, this user can be expected to stream this many hours of music and our average cost per song is like this micro transaction. We'd expect this many micro transactions over the month. So that comes out to this dollar point. We need to charge, you know, 10, $15 above that. And, you know, that could be realistically the way that they price this, you know, if, if, they go a Spotify direction. Um, but I imagine that like what we'll see is a bunch of different platforms that don't necessarily charge to list the song. Uh, they might charge to to play the song. So the micro transaction, um, but they will be building value on their web property in other ways uh, than related more to music discovery. And I think that large platforms like Spotify will just leverage their ex- the existing kind of NFT to provide the streaming access um, using that arbitrage model. But I think what you'll see is yes, a lot more options for users, but it'll be more around again, finding new artists uh, or potentially, you know, curating a vibe or a sound uh, aesthetic, you know, as opposed to kind of like a broad streaming platform where you can get everything. Um, Though I do think that that will emerge. I, you know, it, it's more likely that Spotify pivots and f- provides and facilitates that when the infrastructure is in place, uh, than, you know, kind of seeing a web three company get VC fueled all the way to the top to compete directly with Spotify on an offering like this. Cause I think that that, I don't think there's a way for the VC model to cash out on that. Um, and so maybe like a natural competitor to Spotify emerges, but it's more likely that Spotify pivots and opens up their Pandora's box of a data model to leverage these, these NFTs.
3: Okay. So this is what I'm picturing in my mind is the beginning of the web, when we were doing websites and I was doing those in being in advertising, it was kind of like, all right, now we got to find a way to put the brochure online. Mm -hmm. Like So we were leveraging technology, the digital world, but still thinking in an analog world. And Mm -hmm. I feel like we're kind of doing the same thing here, meaning uh, translating a tangible object into an NFT. And the reason why I'm saying this is because I'm going to say the word metaverse or virtual reality. I feel like the real payoff for this, it will be when as a society, we really changed the way we actually consume this art either the music in a more immersive way maybe in a metaverse kind of way a lot at the virtual concert interacting with the virtual avatar of the artist i mean i'm going a little nuts here but you know and then i'm going to go to the you know to the flea market and buy a vinyl this weekend <laughs> because i like that but i also like to you think that they the crack,
2: the crack them and smash them i know
3: <laughs> i just like to scratch them um <laughs> but but you know like you know let's take this that uh, this remaining maybe you know 10 minutes or so to envision what what can we what is going to be that it can really make the difference instead of just adopting what we got with the technology. Let's just go crazy on that.
4: I wish I had a better imagination for stuff like that. I very much work within the bounds of where we kind of exist today. So I, I'm very much uh, what I call Web 2.5. How do we bridge Web 2 to Web 3? Um,
3: oh, I I'm not think- Web point 10. so go for
4: it. <laughs> Absolutely. I wish I was that uh, visionary. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, but
3: because I, mean, I don't have technology reference, so it's just a fantasy world for me.
4: <laughs> I just, and I only think in terms of software, so I'm just limited by the, what I understand right now. But I think from a VR, AR perspective, like you're definitely right. The more we get to an immersive environment uh, or like even just mixed reality, right? Where the lines are starting to blur between the metadata that we interact with in our everyday life and kind of like the virtual identity where we've at least pretty much established for ourselves. Now, we just don't necessarily own, Um, you know, that digital identity belongs to the software system it's imprinted in, whether that's Facebook or Google at all big tech. Um, So I I get caught up in the whole metaverse commentary because it frustrates me a little bit because I think it really pushes towards the video game environment of things. And I think the metaverse has more to do with metadata and you know data governance than it does with you know an immersive environment. But I think that you know they're both getting at the same point, which is there's a lot more data that's involved in all of these systems than we necessarily you know recognize. And that data has to do with kind of the predictability of behavior within those environments. And so that's machine learning, AI. We could kind of spend a whole bunch of time going into that. But for me, the reason why I see things the way I do is because a lot of that metadata uh, is locked away in disparate software systems today that don't speak to each other, that could add value to these small businesses. If you're talking in more of a larger immersive environment, you know, the music and art, I think the ways in which we'll see these things commercialized are about as limitless as those artists' own imagination and perspectives you were talking about some of these AI generated art pieces earlier. And one of the ones that I like uh, quite a bit is I want to say it's called Deezers, but it might be called Gazers. I have to double check, but the project basically um, has created uh, a moon that exists on like a time interval that could span thousands and thousands of years in the future. And the image itself is slowly updating to reflect what phase the moon is in, in that calendar. And it's, it's not anything terribly fancy or complicated, but the concept of this image that could very well, and, you know, for many people outlast their existence by, you know, uh, multiples powers of 10 of their own life is kind of just like uh, something to ponder. And it's like, whether the art, or whether the blockchain that is recording this data actually persists long enough for the art piece to fully iterate through its cycles, you know, it's not like I'm going to be around to know. And uh, I think that that's kind of artsy in its own way. Uh, You know, maybe I'm nerding out over the wrong piece here right now, but I think that like these pieces that kind of get people to ponder questions that they don't really encounter in their everyday life, Uh, you know, are kind of like an early introduction to, you know, the boundless thinking that this immersive environment of augmented reality or virtual reality is going to provide creators like this. Um, And so while I'm not a creator or an artist, and I'm certainly not creative (laughs) in those capacities, I I really just, it's hard for me to imagine a limitation on what could be created in the future by, by people who are far more imaginative than me.
2: And it makes me wonder, uh, I mean, we've, we've talked about it sometimes in the context of the metaverse uh, versus <laughs> where you might have a, a quote unquote property or an asset that, that lives in one and can you take it out and move it to another? Does it have any value in, the r- in real life? Mm-hmm. And now you're talking about the, the longevity and sustainability of, of these things. And I mean, we can look to technology. I mean, Windows 95 Mm-hmm. Some people may use it, right? Um, probably hardly anybody does that that really cares about technology. Um, so they let it go. It's it's a small investment. They use it for what they want, and when it when it quote unquote expires, it expires. Um, but you look into the business world where companies have invested gazillions of dollars in mainframe infrastructures, right? Those still exist and because there's a huge investment and and those things will carry on Mm -hmm. to a point right we're starting to see some of that phase out with the cloud of course um so i guess my my question is if there is one um what what do you see will drive the stickiness of the stuff is is it going to be money i'm if somebody invests 10 million bucks in an nft uh, and they expect to pass that down to their kids and grandkids and whatnot. They're going to want that too many bucks to to be there.
4: Yeah, I, I think that's a really valid question that, you know, people who are looking at NFTs as an investment are certainly asking themselves. I, um, I don't approach NFTs as an investment. I think of them as a tool um, for database management, data governance that being said because of the scarcity property because of the publicly verifiable property that they have you know it does make them potentially collectible so i think when the collectible is associated with a brand that you know you believe is going to have longevity and value then that collectible will likely have a market uh, who knows how liquid that market will be but of people who want to collect that memorabilia and that could be a, a valid investment strategy for some people especially people who have a lot more experience in the industry that the brand they've collected operates in. Now uh, when it comes to what's going to make NFTs super sticky, super valuable, why would this actually win out over the current environment? Um, This is my hypothesis. So uh, I don't know how accurate it is, but it is what I'm working with as an assumption to build my business and approach the market. But it's basically that, collaborative intelligence is greater than competitive intelligence. And what I mean by that is what we've seen from large corporations today is the value that their scale enterprise data has improving operational efficiencies, not just in marketing and advertising, but across all the KPIs in their business. And um, what what enables them to have that sort of scale efficiency is the scale size of their data sets. Because when we look at data and statistics, Uh, we know that, you know, as the sample size increases, we're able to increase the confidence in our predictions around uh, the data set for whatever we're optimizing towards. Um, And, you know, there's other things we have to consider about the representation of that, you know, data set as well. But for this, for, you know, the lack of uh, nuance here, you know, the larger the data set, the more effective the predictions. And uh, when you have a competitive environment where it's company A versus company B, the company with the bigger data sets is going to be able to leverage the artificial intelligence and machine learning models uh, with greater accuracy than the company with the smaller data set. So in in companies and industries where it would make sense for businesses to pull their operational data together um, because it's not necessarily a competitive differentiator for them, they're going to be able to glean insights that they wouldn't able to do on their own. Um, and I think that that's going to attract a lot of small businesses in, that's going to disrupt larger, cat, larger enterprise players because they'll no longer be relying or dependent on their tooling or what's being provided to them through those systems, because they're able to achieve uh, kind of the same results through a collaborative approach instead of you know uh, this third party partner kind of approach. And so the direct example I'd like to use is like with electricians. Right now, if an electrician wants to go and you know basically place an ad on Google, uh, they're more than likely going to come up against Angie's List or Yelp in the search results. Um and Angie's List and Yelp being the much larger company with a lot more data on electricians is going to be able to purchase that ad spot for way cheaper than the individual electrician is going to be if the electricians were to pool their marketing data together, they would be able to achieve parity, if not potentially beat uh, the scale data sets of Yelp and Angie's List and negate the need to have to also go buy on their platform. Now, there's other reasons to buy on Angie's List and Yelp, but this is just kind of like an example of how collaborative intelligence would be more efficient than competitive intelligence in one use case.
2: Yeah, and we, we, we touched on that a bit as well in the last episode with a slightly deeper dive on that. And I think the um, interesting thing here is because um, we got, obviously we talked about Web3 where the data is owned by the, the uh, creator of the data, right, and only shared when they want to, with whom they want to share it. And And I think in your example of the electricians coming together, sharing their data, they're, they're trusting each other to do good things with it, right? And and perhaps even their customers uh, doing the same because uh, customers want to get the best service as well for the best price, so.
4: Absolutely. I, I kind of see them as digital guilds. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. There, there's definitely ways that that could be, you know, negative as well. Um, but I think on the whole that, you know, more more of these business owners than not operate from a, you know, they're small businesses. So their reputation matters more than I think a lot of large companies. Um, so I think they, they often operate from a lot, you know, a lot more reasonable place of, you know, reputational risk and safety in terms of what they're doing as a business.
3: Well, I mean, th- th- just to wrap here, the the way I see it is that we're on a point now that there is a scalable solution. Let's say there is a technology that we can we can apply to to a lot of things with with our own creativity. Um, I'm being kind of idealistic here. I'm connecting with the small business you talked about last time. The guild. The, I'm talking about this the artist, and we didn't touch on you know we talked about musician, but we can talk about photographer, painters, whatever you want, writers, any anything that you can attach. And, and added more ephemeral value to it, but it could be monetized. And I think it's an important, probably, I'm thinking, one of the first time, if not the first time, in the history of our society, where we have a technology, and maybe, maybe we don't know exactly what to do with it. But there could be a lot of application, and here the creativity. I mean, today we have done we've done a lot of thinking. We throw some ideas, some hypotheses on how feasible can be something, how great will be if we could do it. And it's, I mean, I'm hoping again, this is a, a, a new opportunity maybe to use the technology in our society for doing something better instead of putting it in the hands of a few and then squeezing everybody else. So take that big, big man.
2: I'm gonna do what you hate Marco. I have one more
3: question. No, one more question. Then I do have Steve one more question. I, I, can't,
2: can't I can't let it go.
3: Steve Martin it, is here. It's, it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm on this,
2: and less from a business perspective, but more from a what's possible perspective. And the, the collaborative in, environment and intelligence is much more powerful than competitive. We we see some of that in the, this is why I feel I, I feel I can ask you this question, open source code. Mm-hmm. And where there's a community that uh, generates code that gets used as libraries and APIs to build other things and multiple libraries and APIs get bundled together with some lodging on top to build something that we haven't had yet. Mm -hmm. Um, Those communities don't benefit. The open source groups don't necessarily benefit unless they turn a version of it into commercial. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering... With your understanding of that, assuming you work with some of that as well, is there a relationship there? Is is there an opportunity there from an NFT perspective?
4: Yeah, so I love this question uh, a lot, actually, because I've thought about it also um, quite a bit, actually. But I think it's an evolution on open source technology. I think one of the things, one of the shortcomings of open source is uh, the commercialization process. I think that incentives, especially financial incentives, are important for motivating people to accomplish tasks and to solve problems. I know that lots of people do do things out of the goodness of their heart, but it's much easier for them to prioritize working on those things when their basic needs are met. And sometimes when those needs are exceeded, just because that's a part of the motivation that drives them to do what they do um, and allows them to make that a priority. And so what I like about sort of the Web3 blockchain space is it is sort of capitalistic in the sense that, you know, it requires capital allocation in order to get many of these projects off the ground. But the approach we see in a lot of, of, I would say, Web3 founders and Web3 communities is one that leads with transparency, with open roadmaps, with open communication, which I think is kind of um, representative of almost like the forums and the you know, projects that you know, kind of come open source, that come out of conversations that occur, that occur on obscure corners of the internet. Um, but it just provides them with a way to actually, you know, maintain, you know, the front. because many of these systems cannot operate in isolation and don't operate without costs. And I think one of the shortcomings of open source is it doesn't account for the cost factor that actually goes into the development of many of these systems. And I'm not saying that people need to profit exorbitantly over these things. But compensation for work and compensation for your contribution to something isn't wrong either. And, um, you know, like I said, I think it's more of like uh, an evolution or a next step on open source, but it provides a uh, more reasonable framework to actually facilitate uh, the operations that need to kind of bring a lot of these open source projects to light. It's great that like really well-paid engineers at some of the top tech companies decide to do these things on their their side and like on their own, but there's so many other developers and programmers out there who can't participate in a lot of these open source projects. Sure, they benefit from them, but they can't become contributors without, you know, kind of working odd and end hours, uh, you know, and potentially without, you know, any sort of recognition for their contributions. And so I think that, you know this is kind of where blockchain may provide an evolution on that NFTs specifically um, i think it kind of there's a lot of references to like the creative common licenses a lot of the nfts are just representing the creative common licenses so there aren't really financial things attached to them Um, they're just free and open use but what it does is it's still giving credit to the creator of the image Uh, so at the very least they can use that as a part of their portfolio um and even though it's open source and openly usable by many people uh you know they can take credit for what they created and i think that the credit element of this is also important and that's kind of where the nft kind of comes into so this is a rambly way to answer questions but i i I don't have a concrete answer is kind of why i'm i'm struggling with it but uh i definitely have thought about it quite a bit myself so
3: you know and in the end uh, this is more of a technology perspective where a lot of people that are in in working in the in the backstage will worry about it i feel i feel like in the end we want this to work but the musician wants to make music and make money out of it (laughs) the other artist wants to build his own art and make a living and maybe establish a legacy for that and the users want to enjoy it hopefully in with Owning their data and in a safe way and maintaining the value. So at the end, you know there there is two, two, three, four, five things that need to all work in order to deliver the right the right solution. Which in the end, I think it's it's what we really want. I mean, it's all fun and games, a lot of theory and, but in the end, it's about how we're going to use it and how we're going to enjoy it. So. Sean, that's where, for me from the society perspective. <laughs> and, uh,
2: and I'll stick with that a little bit because I, I think as we wrap here, just the, the idea that, I mean, hard times creates good music and good art, right? Those experiences of, of hard times, it generates emotions and things that, that create some interesting art. But then getting that art into the hands of the right people or as many people as you possibly can becomes a challenge. Right, and a burden that many many artists can't can't uh, can handle, and they, that's why they turn to the labels. That's why they turn to uh, galleries and things like that, where you know, agents, where big chunks of their their uh, money comes comes out. And it sounds like they they can take back control with this, and be collaborative with their peers to uh, to be part of a guild, whatever you want to call it, to to really really get their work into the hands of the people that really care about it.
3: Yep. And with all this set, now I'm gonna play a vinyl. <laughs> Old school. So don't bother me with that. There's no NFT oh, yeah. there.
2: I'm, I'm licensing the the use of the needle for that.
3: But but if you play <laughs> it backwards, you know, I you may hear the up up now. message of the number nine. Number nine. Number, number nine.
2: I have a number nine behind me.
3: <laughs> there you go. you go all right well we're gonna close this when uh almost an hour so connor always great talking to you we 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 just hang out and and talk about interesting things and looking at different perspectives and again yeah hope we can make people think this is redefining society we don't know where we're going but we know that we're moving and that's that's very important so if you enjoy this conversation There'll be links to connect the Connor in the show notes and uh, we'll, we'll link, keep link talking. Link to the other
2: episode as well.
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like if you haven't, if we haven't teased the other episode enough. Now you're closing your that. Listen right. to that episode. Thank you very That's much. Right. Well, now's a good time to go and do that.
1: BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impact of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels.